0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Steve Orleans, President of of the National Committee on US China Relations. And I'm thrilled today to be joined by my old friend, she- Shelley Rigger, who has written, it's a wonderful cover, um, <laughs> written a, a book called The Tiger Leading the Dragon How Taiwan Propelled China's Economic Rise. It is a, as all of Shelley's books are, it is a wonderful, fascinating, interesting, informative read. And it talks about really a question that has been rather under uh, discussed over the last 30 years, which is how really Taiwan investment propelled uh, China's economic growth. And it's it's absolutely uh, a must read, especially as these issues have become even more important going forward. What does it really mean for Taiwan participation in China's economy going forward? I won't go over uh, Shelley's incredible biography, except to say she is now the Brown Professor of Political Science at Davidson College, which is in North Carolina. She is the person we at the National Committee turn to, to talk about Taiwan. Uh, She is really one of America's leading experts and a great friend to the committee. But let me uh, turn it over to Shelly who will talk. We're arguing over how long she will talk for. (laughs) She will give you a flavor of the book because we wanna encourage you to buy the book, but don't read us the full book. And um, (laughs) then we will go on to questions. We already have a bunch of great audience questions and I've got some questions which I'd like to raise. But Shelly, take it over.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Steve. And it is a pleasure to be with everyone, even you know, if only in this much diminished format in which our heads are the size of our thumbs. Um, but let me just jump right in because time's a wasting, as I've been told. So we all know this um, really significant mystery of our age, which is how in the world did a country that as of 1976, essentially had no private property or business become by the early 2000s, the factory to the world. You know, how is it possible that China could go from almost no exports in 1978 to you know, something like $2.5 trillion in exports by the year 2020? So the answer that I give in this book is that Taiwan, that, that the PRC was able to take off and achieve this incredible acceleration of export manufacturing expansion thanks to foreign direct investment and, in particular, investment in manufacturing by ethnic Chinese, above all, by ethnic Chinese from Taiwan. So one easy criticism one can make of the book is that it's only about Taiwanese investors and not also about Hong Kong investors or uh, ethnic Chinese from Southeast Asia. And those are fair criticisms. Um, But for my purposes, I think um, it was manageable to look at Taiwanese. And I also think that Taiwanese did play a singular role in enabling China's economic takeoff. So in the book, I really talk about uh, two ways in which Taiwanese investors and others, Taiwanese participants in the life of mainland China since 1987 have helped to transform the PRC, economic ways that that's happened, and also uh, more cultural and sort of lifestyle oriented ways that China has been transformed. So fundamentally, how Taiwanese investors transformed the PRC's economy was by transferring Taiwan's own experience of export-oriented manufacturing to the mainland. So Taiwan became an export-oriented manufacturing powerhouse in its own right in the 1960s and 70s and by the 1980s was really hitting its stride. And in the book, I go into the sort of origins of that development and the developmental state, the role that Taiwan's developmental state played in creating in Taiwan a manufacturing-oriented, export-oriented economy that was rooted in small and medium-sized enterprises, their SMEs. So not the developmental state of Japan or South Korea giving birth to huge, industrial conglomerates and families of industrial conglomerates that are today important global brands, rather in Taiwan, a developmental state that created an environment in which very small manufacturing companies could thrive. So by the late 1980s, Taiwan's uh, export-oriented manufacturing sector was already kind of Well, it was kind of a joke. So in the, um, in Toy Story, I think it's Toy Story 3 or Toy Story 4, where Buzz Lightyear appears, uh, Buzz thinks he's a real guy until he notices that inside of his sleeve on his arm, it says, Made in Taiwan. And, you know, that's a big laugh line for uh, grownups when the movie came out in the mid 1990s, because we all remember, yeah, yeah, Made in Taiwan, that's where our toys come from. But by the mid-1980s, so honestly well before um, Buzz Lightyear's actual birth date, Taiwan was actually reaching the limits of its own manufacturing capacity. Um, Labor costs, environmental regulation, and also factors related to currency exchange we're all making traditional manufacturing, so plastics, apparel, shoes, that kind of thing. very expensive in Taiwan. So it was extremely fortuitous that in 1987, then President Jiang Jinghua, the son of Jiang Kai-shek, decided to end Taiwan's isolation from the PRC and allow Taiwanese to go over to the other side. And when they did, making these humanitarian visits, as they were called back in 1987, what many of those Taiwanese visitors immediately recognized was that the PRC was perfect for a second act. Exactly the things that were making manufacturing difficult and expensive in Taiwan were barriers that could be completely eliminated if they could move their production to the PRC. So what you saw after 1987 was a a very rapid mobilization of Taiwanese business to relocate to the mainland in traditional manufacturing. That in turn opened up space in Taiwan's domestic economy for the uh, explosion of the high-tech industry with all of the companies that Are you know famous, world famous Taiwanese brands in the tech sector are all products of that post 87 um, flood of activity to the mainland by the traditional manufacturers and um, the kind of whole new wave of economic activity within Taiwan? These uh, Taiwanese investors or Taishang who went to the PRC brought with them a lot of different opportunities and um, just things that the PRC was able to use or that individuals and organizations within the PRC were able to use to create what we know today as as the PRC's economic or export oriented manufacturing boom. First of all, they brought a lot of money. Nobody knows how much money, but it was a lot. Um, Minimum of uh, $190 billion US dollars by 2020, but probably we would need to triple that number in order to get close to the real amount, and we can talk about why I can't give you that number, um, why no one knows in the Q&A if you're interested, but let us just stipulate it was a lot of money. Uh, Taiwanese manufacturers also brought a lot of jobs to the PRC at a time when industrial employment was fervently desired by local officials and by the PRC workforce. Taiwanese firms also brought technology with them, um, introducing modes of production that were non-existent in the mainland, and management expertise, so helping PRC based entities to understand how to operate businesses in the late 20th and early 21st century in ways that allowed them to become competitive in global markets. And finally, maybe the most valuable thing of all that uh, Taiwanese brought to the PRC were were supply chain relationships. So most of these Taiwanese SMEs were not manufacturing under their own brands. They were contract manufacturers for global brands like Nike, Adidas, Apple, Schwinn bicycles. when they moved their operations to the PRC, it was with the understanding of those customers that they would continue to do the same kind of contract manufacturing, same quality, same IPR protection, much lower price in the new venue. So my argument in the book is that uh, those global brands, like uh, the ones that I listed, Adidas, Nike, Schwinn, etc., would not have formed relationships with indigenous PRC companies very easily. And it would have been hard for PRC-originated firms to enter those supply chains. But the Taiwanese gave PRC people and organizations access to those supply chains, and they have now in the most recent few years been um, in fact Edging aside some of their Taiwanese predecessors and really becoming central players in global supply chains. What did the Taiwanese get out of all of this? Well, they got a new lease on life because at least for traditional manufacturing, the the time was, uh, the clock was ticking on their survival given the cost structure in Taiwan and without the opportunity to go to the mainland, many of them would either have moved somewhere else, so um, farther afield or would have had to close up shop altogether. So that is the bulk of the book, explaining uh, that the sort of the economics of the relationship, but it does also go into some of the ways in which Taiwanese have transformed the PRC that go beyond simple business and economics. So consumer behavior, Philanthropy, religion, pop culture, and even institutional developments in the PRC all have been shaped by Taiwan's participation there. Um, Just to give you a taste of some of the things that I talk about, uh, the whole concept of affordable luxury. So, you know, a Starbucks experience at a price Chinese consumers can afford. This is the kind of business that Taiwanese have been creating for the PRC. Also uh, philanthropy. So uh, the uh, Tsuji Buddhist Compassion Foundation was the first non-PRC originated philanthropic organization that was allowed to provide direct services to people in the PRC. In terms of religion, we have seen uh, Taiwanese pilgrims kind of reinvigorate temple cultures in the mainland and not only pay for the restoration of many temples, but also literally um, bring the knowledge for religious practice back from Taiwan to temples in the mainland that the Taiwanese pilgrims themselves believe are the mother temples of the places that they worship in, in Taiwan. I also talk about uh, popular culture and the just incredible contributions of uh, Taiwanese musicians and others to pop culture in the mainland. and even the way that uh, the way Mandarin is spoken in mainland China has been influenced by how Mandarin is spoken in Taiwan. And finally there's you know I'm still learning about new ways that Taiwan has influenced the mainland. I just discovered another one. Um, the idea of a Chinese tea ceremony, the sort of Lao Ren Cha or Gong fu Cha, is actually a, an import from Taiwan. And so that's why it seems to resemble the Japanese tea ceremony because it was shaped by the Japanese tea ceremony in Taiwan, um, but is now very popular in places that are trying to sell tea in the PRC. So the way I conclude the book is by... Acknowledging that this process by which Taiwanese discovered mainland China as an opportunity for their businesses and in that making that discovery and in carrying their own opportunity forward to the mainland created opportunity in the PRC, that that sort of arc of cooperation and collaboration between the two sides is on the waning side of its trajectory that um, today most Taiwanese, many Taiwanese companies are still very active in the PRC, but many of them are expanding more in other locations, mainly for economic reasons, just that it has become very expensive to do the kind of manufacturing that many of those companies do in the PRC and also because of the increasing sense that uh, the PRC economy is more difficult to navigate politically and in terms of business relationships. Also the international environment for PRC business relations is more complicated. So there's a bit of bet hedging by Taiwanese investors Nonetheless, I think there will always be a massive amount as as far as my eye can see, a massive amount of Taiwanese money invested in the mainland and a large number of people, both mainlanders and Taiwanese, who make their living off of what has been an extremely win-win relationship uh, between the two sides of the strait in terms of business and more. So I think I got in just about in my 15 minutes as allotted by Steve Orlands. And so I'm happy to hear your questions.
1: Uh, that that was terrific. And really does give the listeners a flavor of, of what's in the book. And I encourage them. I think it's we've already posted how you can how you can buy it. Um, Already, we've got three questions on the same subject, so let me start with that. One it's, it's something called the Journal Square Community Association, others, and then I'll ask the one asked by uh, Glenn Shive, who's from the Virginia Military Institute. He said, did Taiwan leaders in the Dengjiang era have doubts about the risks of helping economic development in the, in the mainland? empowering the PRC to pivot and use its strength to challenge Taiwan as it is doing today. Do they have second thoughts now in the Xi era about the, the engagement policies of the past?
0: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that from the very beginning, there was no shortage of anxiety among Taiwanese leaders about the potential consequences of this economic cooperation. They knew that they were strengthening the PRC economy, and they knew, and and actually their statements at the time pay a lot more attention to the fact that they were aware that they were potentially hollowing out Taiwan's own domestic manufacturing capacity. But they were really not in a position to stop it because the uh, economic pressure on taiwan manufacturing companies was all lower your costs and cost down that's how the taiwanese businessmen always said it to me you know it was just always the same message cost down cost down cost down so you know these these foreign brands would they, you know they knew that that costs could be cut and they were not going to continue in a contracting relationship with a company that was not able to make the cost go down. And there was nothing that the Taiwanese government could really do to stop investors from taking their money out. Um, there There were and continue to be restrictions on highly strategic technologies. So for example, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, TSMC is limited in the sophistication level that it can actually manufacture in the the PRC. But even TSMC would say, there's some stuff we make that it's just not worth it to pay Taiwan wages to make this, you know, this low-tech wafer thingy, Um, which I assure you, all of them are very high-tech, but um, the, the, Technology frontier is very far from what uh, TSMC actually is allowed to manufacture in the PRC. So, you know, they had they 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 recognized the risks, but there was very little they could do. They couldn't very well force companies to go out of business rather than uh, move their manufacturing to a cheaper platform. And I think the solution ultimately that they arrived at was okay, we're going to lose. Traditional manufacturing, we're not going to be doing injection molded plastic in Taiwan very much anymore. But what we have to do then is we have to d- develop something that fills that space, and it's out of that energy that you get the the high tech miracle. And really, you know, TSMC, Acer, ASUS, um, companies like those, Foxconn for crying out loud, you know these are very valuable corporations in their own right that are made possible by this trend.
1: Does the go south policy, so the the KMT had much less of a go south policy than the DPP. Then the DPP started it, it kind of receded during the KMT rule of mind, Joe, and then has returned. Given the competitive advantage that Taiwan people, bring to the mainland both linguistic, cultural, geographic, it goes on and on. Does the go South policy make any sense?
0: So yeah, that's a a perfect segue because in fact, the way that uh, Li Donghui tried to redirect Taiwanese investors away from the mainland was by saying, well, instead of going into the PRC, why don't you go into Southeast Asia? So the original go south policy was a kind of hortatory campaign to try to persuade Taiwanese companies that if they were running out of running space in Taiwan, that they should um, move their operations into Southeast Asia. And what was missing really was the economic complementarity there. There just wasn't um, the capacity, the Taiwanese investors just did not see the opportunities as comparable in Southeast Asia as they what they could see in mainland China. And I think it's really less about uh, the, the complementarity of language and so on, although that certainly did make things easier, but you don't see Taiwanese immediately going straight to Fujian, you know, where they have that um, language similarity. The first place they go is Dongguan, which is outside of uh, Hong Kong, and they go there because that's how they get into China, like literally, physically, the way you enter China from Taiwan is through Hong Kong. So I think that they were driven mainly by, by their business and financial opportunities and the advantage that the PRC had over anywhere else was just unstoppable. Now in the time,
1: This was all, of course, people need to remember there were no direct flights in that period between between Taiwan and mainland cities that should literally, I became a diamond member of Cathay Pacific because of my flights between Taiwan, Hong Kong and mainland cities. It was the only way to get, terrible. It's a full day to get yeah. from Taipei to virtually any city in the mainland, except yes. for Nguan, where you, you could fly to Hong Kong and then drive to one.
0: And in fact, it was only in 2008, which when you think about it, was really not that long ago that those direct flights became possible, uh, which is kind of incredible. But so the original Go South policy didn't really succeed in redirecting money and activity away from the PRC. But the current one under Tsai one, is I think more successful. And the reason it's more successful is the economics have changed. There's a lot of pressure on Taiwanese firms to diversify out of the PRC. Um, a couple of specific data points that have kind of changed the picture a little bit are made in China 2025, which was a shot across the bow of Taiwan tech companies saying, we don't want you in China um, and we don't wanna be buying your products in another 10 years. So, um, you know, that's a strong message. And then um, the other one slips my mind at the moment, but um, it'll come back to me, but, you know, or or the tariffs, sorry, the, the US, the Trump administration tariffs, which suddenly made it like, in some cases 25% more expensive if you were manufacturing in the PRC as opposed to somewhere else. So these are really sort of very hard factors that have also added to the softer encouragement and uh, kind of carrots that the Thai administration has been holding out that have helped to accelerate the go South policy in its kind of rebirth since
1: 2016. The, are we seeing, you know, my view of the, the US, the bilateral trade deficit with China is initially it was a trade deficit we had with Japan. Then as Japan became too expensive, it moved to South Korea and Taiwan. Then as South Korea and Taiwan became too expensive, it moved fundamentally to China. Now as China's becoming too expensive, it's gonna to have to move to lower cost destinations. The book seems to suggest that that view is correct. Does it, do you, you think it does it? Did you intend that?
0: I mean, I think uh, part of what's going on is, you know, that the the deficit doesn't really move, right? This, the, Stamp on Buzz Lightyear's arm changes. Yeah. But what is inside a Buzz Lightyear? You know, Buzz is injection molded plastic for one thing, um, but he's also design. He's also, uh, he can talk. So he's got chips, cheap chips inside him. You know, he's got electrical wiring. It's possible that all of that could be made in the PRC today. But um, the, a lot, if, if we set aside Buzz Lightyear for a minute and talk about my iPhone, you know, a lot of what's in my iPhone, which was indeed assembled in a Foxconn factory in China, was not the, the really good parts, the juicy bits were not made in the PRC to begin with. So we label that product as made in China and we attribute its value to the U.S. trade deficit with the PRC. Meanwhile, the PRC has a huge trade deficit with Taiwan because it's buying all these semiconductors. 49% of the PRC's imports from Taiwan are semiconductors. And what are those semiconductors going into? Well, some of them are going into, you know, Pelotons for guys in Beijing to walk on, but a lot of them are going into products that are being exported again. So I guess what I would say is that our trade deficit is smeared over a lot of different countries but it always gets kind of attributed to the the place where the finished product finally got loaded into a container and shipped off to California to sit in the water for weeks on end.
1: But certainly the tariffs of the previous administration hurt Taiwan manufacturing.
0: Yes. Um, Although they have been pretty nimble about trying to move um, but yeah, and the previous administration also made life difficult for Taiwan in another way, which is uh, the whole kind of politicization of semiconductor production. Um, TSMC is highly uh, interdependent with Huawei. And you know when Huawei became public enemy number one for the Trump administration, um, that's a lot of heartburn in TSMC headquarters, you can be sure.
1: And there's looks, there's, doesn't seem to be anything on the horizon for resolving that for TSMC. If anything, it's becoming more hardened. It, it, I think it constituted, your books points out it constituted about 10% of their revenue to Huawei.
0: I don't remember. You've read it more recently than I have. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How much, there were Chinese in the old days who said to me that, that you know, as somebody did business in China, I never was, was approached by anyone for, there was never any corruption I saw. They said that the corruption always occurs with, with Taiwan companies, with Hong Kong companies, and with Southeast Asian companies. How much did the Taishang bring or allow corruption to kind of occur in China?
0: So I think corruption is a naturally occurring phenomenon in all economies, and it can be suppressed by um, government action. Uh, You know, I I don't think it was an import um, from anywhere, but I will uh, entertain the possibility that Taiwanese, Businesses were more susceptible to playing in that game or, you know, to to finding themselves compelled to play in that game for a couple of reasons. Um, One being that they, many of them, were coming from environments in Taiwan that were already pretty corrupt. I mean, um, you know, these manufacturing towns in central Taiwan have their political, they have their, um, you know, their Heidao and their Baidao, the white sword and the black sword. And um, so they, they were not surprised, I imagine, when they got to, to the mainland and there were payoffs to local officials that were part of the deal. Um, but another reason that they may have been more vulnerable than um, business people from Japan or uh, the sort of Euro-American sphere is that uh, they had no government protection or support, or for that matter, nobody looking over their shoulder saying, are you violating our Foreign Corrupt Practices Act? Um, The Taiwanese government was absent from the mainland completely. And so Taiwanese manufacturers had to make their own way and figure out how to function within that environment. And functioning within that environment very often meant Finding a local party cadre who was interested in in bringing your business to the locality he was in charge of and helping him succeed. And if that meant, um, you know, helping him persuade some people that it was in their interest to say yes to something and that cost you a little money, well, You know that's money well spent because it allows your business to happen, so there was an enormous amount of uh, collaboration and still is between local governments and Taiwanese businesses, and I think it's fair to uh, suspect that not all of it was simply out of the desire to do the best thing for the villagers.
1: Talk about the role of politics. The book kind of suggests this is, as you said in your presentation, this was economic driven. It was the sec- It gave Taiwan businesses a new lease on life that they were being priced out of their own uh, their own market, and it gave them a new a new lease lease on life. Talk about how politics played some of this, and a few things specifically. One, this was all occurring when Lee donghui made his historic visit to the United States, which created an enormous political eruption between the United States and China. Second, the support of the DPP versus the KMT. Were companies that uh, were strongly supportive of DPP disfavored by mainland authorities, or was it basically up to the very local government, the Xianzhangfu, the county government? And they said, you're fair to us you're making you're creating employment here i'll get promoted it's good enough
0: you know mostly it was the latter but there were definitely some big companies like for most the plastics where the uh, bosses made statements that the prc leadership felt it was necessary to um, address you know that uh i remember at some point uh, P.R.C. leader maybe Hu Jintao saying, you know, there are people who are making money in the P.R.C. by working against the interests of the Chinese nation, and we need to, we need to stop letting them do that kind of a thing. You know, that um, supporting the D.P.P. or supporting candidates who are not sufficiently robust in their conviction for unification was something that um, that big businesses and big business leaders were called out for but i think the larger story you know if we look back over the whole thing and and we paid such close attention to all of this as it was unfolding you know i remember a whole series of conferences in the early 1990s about how taiwan's economy is hollowing out and there will be no taiwanese economy going forward and then all of a sudden we have this high tech wave that's just um, blowing everybody out of the water and So we paid close attention to all of it as we went along. And the the politics, there was constant scrutiny of how are these economic developments affecting the political relationship between the two sides. I had a a grant proposal that actually became the research for my book, Why Taiwan Mattered, that was called. coming together or growing apart, something like that, you know. So which is it? Is is all of this economic activity bringing the two sides closer or are they still spinning, you know, centrifugalizing themselves away? And I think, looking back on it now, what I would say is that the effect on politics was amazingly small you know, that the the business just kind of kept going no matter what. The sharpest increase in Taiwanese investment in mainland China was between 2000 and 2008, which is when Chen Shui-bian was president. So neither side either was or could do anything to slow the velocity of that, you know, economic wave. So, you know, I think in the end, um, it has probably bought time for the two sides to recognize the value of a peaceful relationship, but it hasn't guaranteed one, that's for sure.
1: Why did the Taiwan service sector never really play a big role in China's economy? I always felt, you know, that because of the linguistic, cultural, and other Similarities that the insurance sector or the banking sector, which was, you know, much more sophisticated in Taiwan and the mainland, the mainland, they needed this kind of support. And I always expected that to happen, but it didn't. I guess the restrictions by PBOC, by CERC, and by others they never would allow an exception for the Taiwan companies? Is that basically what happened? Or they just didn't want to take the risk?
0: Yeah, I think uh, it's some of both. But there was a lot more regulation, especially if you're talking about financial services. You know, other parts of the service sector, more retail or commercial services, um, I think as much as anything, just the vast size of China, you know, that, that there are a lot of a lot of Taiwanese companies have gone into retail and commercial services in the mainland, um, but twenty-three the the output of twenty-three million people trying to do that is a drop in the bucket in such a large country. But you're really talking about financial services, and there there were much more effective economic controls on both sides, and I think especially on the Taiwan side, the uh, recognition of the risks of that kind of exposure, you know, SMEs, they yeah. come, they go, yeah. live, they die, they thrive, they starve, you know, like tons of people, tons of Taiwanese people lost their shirts in mainland China as part of this whole process. I don't want to leave you with the impression that everybody got rich, like a lot of people got busted. There's this whole kind of um, meme of the Taiwanese investor who's stuck in the mainland because he He's too embarrassed and he doesn't really have money for a plane ticket to go home, you know? So, but as long as they're small and as long as they're manufacturing and as long as they don't sort of feed back into Taiwan's economic core, it's not the end of the world. Banking, insurance, now you're talking big risk.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 changing with the return of many, uh, PRC students who've studied in the United States, worked in financial services in the United States are now returning to China to be the core of their financial services industry. But in Ta- the, the single biggest problem for financial services companies after regulation is human resources, the ability to find people. Well, interesting, a Taiwan company wouldn't, a Taiwan financial services company wouldn't have that problem, they could simply bring people over. I remember, you know, when I ran Taiwan broadband communications, so we had a little less than a third of the Taiwan cable television market. So we had Taichung, Shinju, Miaoli, and 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 Taichung. And, um, We couldn't grow anymore because it would have violated the antitrust rules of of Taiwan. So all of the managers of all of the different uh, operations in each of the counties or in Taichung, their dream was to get the business on the mainland. That if we could operate a cable television system on the mainland, they could, instead of, we had about 700,000 families, we could, they said we could have 7 million families, but obviously uh, we actually asked we asked the mainland government if, if we could do it. And they said, uh, we'll let you know when that happens. <laughs> We're still waiting for the answer. Uh,
0: <laughs> you know, that, that opportunity though, I think people don't always realize how, especially Americans who live, I mean, we live in a huge market, but for many of the Taiwanese business people that I've talked to, especially white collar workers, even more than entrepreneurs, that's why they want to go to the to the mainland is because you know like in taiwan if you are supervising 500 people that's a lot in china you start at 5000 and you go up from there so the opportunity to grow your own self professionally is something that many taiwanese really embrace which i think is worth noting because it's it's hard to stop people from wanting to have that kind of ambition and to be yeah. everything they can be professionally over the course of their careers.
1: Yeah, and this was during the, the Chen Shui-bin era and then the mind Zhou era. And it was clearly, they, their great hope was actually for better cross-strait relations. So ultimately the mainland government would allow us to operate a cable television system in in uh, in the mainland, and they would get promoted. They would have exactly what you said, Shelley. Instead of 500 people, they'd have 5,000. Instead of 700,000 customers, we'd have 7 million. Um, Maybe one day, maybe my post-National Committee life that that (laughs) (laughs) this would happen. Uh, Peggy Blumenthal asks um, if PRC students are still studying in Taiwan universities.
0: So as of the beginning of COVID, they were. Um, although somewhat diminished in number. Um, I don't think that there is much of that um, under the COVID restrictions though. Both the PRC and Taiwan are really COVID tight. And um, so I think, I think that's the bigger factor right now than um, Taiwan or PRC students not wanting to go to the mainland. What we did see a really big drop in um, even before COVID was tourists. And that was because the PRC government had been encouraging tourists to visit Taiwan during the Ma era in order to um, create some cross-strait people to people activity and also in order to beef up Taiwan's dependence on PRC tourists as a kind of economic opportunity for the PRC to have some leverage within Taiwan. But when uh, Tsai was elected, then they implemented a series of steps aimed at making it more difficult for PRC people to go as tourists to Taiwan. Um, And that that required some adjustment in Taiwan, although it was not the catastrophe I think that maybe some in Beijing had hoped it would be. Uh, for Taiwan.
1: What are the implications of the book for the future of of Taiwan mainland economic relations as well as U.S. Taiwan mainland economic relations?
0: So you know what I wish the implication was was that people everywhere could see we are all living better admittedly, maybe living dirtier, (laughs) you know, all of this activity generated a lot of uh, climate change, that's for sure. But we're all living better because of this cooperation. You know, I can have an iPhone, and I can afford to buy an iPhone for my kid. And my students, some of whom are are not at all well off, can have an iPhone, because Apple collaborated with Foxconn in and they did something in China that allowed this absolutely miraculous piece of technology to be manufactured at a price that ordinary Americans can afford. If if that if that collaboration had not occurred, if ta- if we were still trying to make iPhones in Taiwan It would not have worked. And so to me, this is a story of, it's a very positive story of how setting aside some of that uh, political animosity and working together on very practical things can bring a lot of benefit that people might not ever have imagined was possible when they had their heads down in the politics of the thing. That's what I wish the the takeaway was. What I think the takeaway will be is that the PRC will never acknowledge the debt to Taiwan and to Taiwanese investors because it is very important, at least for the PRC leadership, to take credit for everything good that happens in the People's Republic of China. Um, However, I also believe that there are many lower level officials and actually probably some pretty high level officials in the PRC who know that their own careers were enabled by this cooperation and who may have some uh, lingering feeling of this was risky for, for our Taiwanese partners and yet they were willing to share their prosperity with us and we should kind of remember that in the future. So maybe there will be a little of that,
1: especially with the leadership having served in Fujian, Zhejiang, and Shanghai.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there would
1: be three places, probably three of the four places which were most influenced by Taiwan investment, with the fourth being Dongguan. Well, um,
0: and um, and the timing too that you mentioned. You know that that timing. Alerts us to think about the year 1989 when the rest of the world cleared out, you know, and there were heavy sanctions on the PRC. The Taiwanese investors barely budged. You know, they were in there. They actually saw the opportunity. That it was a kind of a fire sale, um, and so they increased their footprint in the in the mainland after June 4th. And I actually um, I worked on another project. Similar to this one for a different audience, and my co author was interviewing an official in Beijing who said, Yeah, I'm not sure our economy would have bounced back after 1989 if it had not been for the Taiwanese investors.
1: They clearly were first back in,
0: yeah,
1: with along with Hong Kong investors. I think the U.S. kind of ignored Dung's southern trip for a few years before it kind of woke up to the fact that things. That things have changed. Um, the comprehensive and progressive Trans Pacific Partnership, the successor to the Trans Pacific Partnership, the mainland has now applied for admission as well as Taiwan. What's going to, what is this about? What does this mean? Is this just a PR exercise by both, or is there real substance here?
0: Um, I think there's real substance here for Taiwan, certainly. I mean, this is in some ways Taiwan's best opportunity. I won't say last opportunity because um, I would have thought the TPP was the last opportunity, but, you know, it, it comes back. Um, but it is Taiwan's best opportunity to avoid economic marginalization. So, you know, Taiwan is squeezed out of all kinds of official... Organizations, global organizations. Today is the 50th anniversary of the passage of the um, UN resolution that expelled Taiwan from the United Nations. And actually, um, Anthony Blinken today made a statement that you know Taiwan should be able to have some kind of participation in the UN system. So we're thinking about Taiwan's marginalization today, uh, but. Taiwan's marginalization is a really serious problem politically, and it's also becoming a serious problem economically. The WTO was supposed to alleviate that. So, Taiwan and the PRC entered WTO at basically the same time, so that uh, Taiwan is a non state entity, as a customs territory. So that they could, uh, so that the global economy could develop with both of those big players on board. But WTO is becoming less of a force in the global economy, and um, regional and bilateral and smaller multilateral forums are becoming more important. And Taiwan is left out of most of those. So for Taiwan, CPTPP. Is a really important way if they could find a way to uh, be in that organization to avoid being left out of the next big thing that's coming, and I think for the PRC, um, you know, why not? I don't know what you think about it, but you know, my feeling is that uh, everybody is trying everything nowadays, so um, why not just throw your hat in the ring and say, "Hey, CPTPP, you tell you tell China." You know, are, are you going to uh, s- insist on your standards or are you going to let the world's leading um, emerging economy, you know, it's not the world's biggest, but it's the one everybody thinks has the brightest future, um, play in your club? And if, uh, if CPTPP does not entertain China's application swiftly, there's not much of a loss for the PRC, but if they do, then the PRC not only gets into CPTPP, but also gets to make sure Taiwan stays out.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that the mainland could engineer Taiwan staying out through one of its friends. You need unanimous consent right. of the member states to enter. so. The US could probably organize keeping China out if we desired to do so, and China could organize keeping Taiwan out. I think kind of the best is exactly what you were pointing to. The best result for the world is uh, what you were pointing to, which is a WTO solution. So actually the, CP, the, the member states enter into negotiations with China, which will take years and years and secure China's consent to allowing Taiwan to join as something not, not, not with the attributes of statehood, but the way it joined WTO as a, as a customs territory, which would help Taiwan economically, which wouldn't jeopardize the politics and get the PRC to enter into certain levels of reform, which would, which would be required for them to, to accede to, to CPTPP. And then the final part of that was maybe it would shake us up enough to get us to think maybe the United States should join CPTPP. In fact, I will be urging our national security professionals to say this is, instead of, not instead of, in addition to working cooperatively on defense arrangements, we should work cooperatively with, with the Asia Pacific on uh, on trade and investment and that would be one great way to to do it absolutely Um, yes that would be we've got lots of questions some of which i have asked um why you know it's interesting one when i think back i think back of two moments over the last 42 years which have kind of where i said gosh things have changed one was when i was in Shanghai, And I first used the Citibank uh, ATM uh, on the Bund. And I said, my God, I can get RMB just with my Citibank card. And it was phenomenal. And the other is when I had breakfast in uh, Taipei one morning, I had lunch. I flew over to Shanghai I Had lunch in, in Shanghai that day. And then I flew on the evening nonstop back to New York. And because of time change, I had dinner with my mother in New York <laughs> that night. And I said, fundamentally, this means to me, it meant that cross-strait relations had permanently changed. What did I get wrong?
0: Um, what you got wrong, Steve, was that you were traveling on a one-way straight, right? Up until about 2012 to 2014, the traffic was all one way from Taiwan to the mainland, companies from Taiwan going to the mainland, people from Taiwan going to the mainland. And of course they came back sometimes, (laughs) but you know, the the trajectory was we Taiwanese go to the mainland and do things. Most of us don't actually, most Taiwanese have never been to the mainland, but some of us choose to do it and it's fine. In two thousand. Eight, nine, um, and especially, and really over the course of Ma ying first term in office, so 2008 to 2012, the uh, there was just this steady stream of new agreements between Taipei and Beijing for different kind of economic stuff that they could do together. And among those agreements were agreements that increased the um, traffic in the other direction. So all of a sudden it became okay for PRC students to be in, in Taiwan. And it became okay for PRC tourists to be in Taiwan. And it became okay for PRC money to be in Taiwan. And that I think is what we didn't anticipate and which I didn't really catch it until probably 20 after 2016, when I suddenly realized the reason Taiwan freaked out in Ma ying second term, so the Sunflower Movement and the series of movements that preceded it beginning in 2012 with the anti-media monopolization movement, which is almost as hard to say as Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, what had happened there was Taiwanese people went from thinking of cross strait as meaning we go across the strait to discovering that cross strait also meant they come across to where we are. And there are a lot of them. The number of tourists, and again, you know, I can't quote my own book because um, I don't remember the exact number, but the number of tourists went from zero to like 4 million in five years.
1: You got the number right. That's what it says. <laughs> there's only
0: 23 million people in Taiwan and, you know, 4 million PRC tourists. Are you kidding me? And I think that's what we didn't realize was that when it started being a two-way straight, that uh, Taiwanese were going to see that as incredibly threatening, as they very reasonably might have done. And yeah. so. It's then that you see the walls going up and, you know, no more uh, in we want to restrict investment. We want to restrict the number of people we want to uh, we want to stop Taiwanese companies from going over there and, and making political alliances, which then they bring back over here. And that's that's what then blew up in 2014. and That's kind of where we've been ever since.
1: I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, it's it's so interesting, because I'm kind of, you know, I guess I'm older, but I always think of Hubert Humphrey, who used to say, you know, the moral test of government is how the government treats those who are in the dawn of life, the children, those who are in the twilight of life, the elderly, and those who are in the shadows of life, the sick, the needy, and the handicapped. And I always believed, you know, when I sat there and I saw the economic benefits that would accrue to Taiwan as a result of more economic integration. I always thought, I, I mistakenly thought it was a no-brainer. I kind of said this was it, and obviously that that was wrong. And it, it relates fundamentally to what you view as the role of government. And it's, it's I think, by stopping the integration on both sides, you know, both sides are responsible. It has made it more difficult for both governments to provide for you know, what Humphrey would call those in the shadow, the shadows of life. And it's it's tragic. You think we'll, last question then, because I know we're, we're just about here, you know, we, um, will it make a comeback? Kind of cross strait investment and trade? Still very you know,
0: strong. Yeah, I, th- I think if, um, I think if the political relationship can revive it, it can do, and I think it really, a lot depends on the Chinese economy itself. I mean, I think there are, there are profound adjustments that need to occur within the PRC, and that um, the PRC has been trying to increase its sort of autarkic economic position, you know, made in China 2025. We might not hear much about it anymore, but it stated an intention, and that is an intention that has to be set aside in order for the world to be able to engage in that kind of innocent way that these Taiwanese investors and not that you know they were innocent in some kind of other sense but they they were unencumbered by thoughts of uh, political machinations when they went and set up their injection molded plastic factory in the middle of nowhere in outside of quanzhou And I don't think we will get back there until um, the PRC leadership kind of depoliticizes its own economic policy and allows economics to function for itself.
1: Shelley, thank you so much, everyone. This is the book the tiger leading the dragon. We've intended to give you a flavor of the book today, which would encourage you to go out and buy it with my very, very, very strong recommendation and my very strong thanks to our friend Shelly Rigger. Thank Thank you you so much.
0: For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.